Hello, friends. I'm Desiree Nielsen, and you're listening to the All Sports Podcast. And today, I am very excited to share this episode with you for a couple of reasons. The first is that we are speaking to none other than Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or Dr. B, as many of you know him, plant-based gastroenterologist and the New York Times best-selling author of Fiber Fueled. The second reason is that somehow this is the final episode of season two of our little podcast, and I could think of no better guest to close it out. We are going to share so much actionable information in this episode to help you strengthen and heal your gut. But first, I want to start by telling you a little story. You know, over a decade of practice, I am pretty convinced that a plant-based diet or whatever version of that that works for you personally is the path to a stronger, healthier gut. And I also think that the research confirms it. So I've been following Dr. B for a while because if there is one thing I love, it is a plant-based gastroenterologist. So I was pretty sure that when he announced his first book, Fiber Fueled, it was going to be an important tool in our practice, but I was also super nervous to read it. So I ordered it and promptly put it in the closet. (laughs) And you're probably wondering why the heck I would do that. But you see, when Fiber Fuel came out in 2020, I was already deep into writing good for your gut. So I was one, not reading any outside books because I didn't want to inadvertently take someone else's ideas. And two, I was also kind of terrified that somehow, no matter how many nights I'd spent searching PubMed until 11 p.m., somehow I would make mistakes and reading Fiber Fueled would show me just how far I'd strayed. Don't ask me how an evidence-based professional would ever think this, but I'm also pretty anxious and so not always logical in my personal life. And as soon as I submitted the manuscript for Good Free Your Gut, I devoured Fiber Fueled in two days, laughing and smiling the whole time because our two perspectives are so aligned. It was like, oh, I don't know, we're both two plant-based professionals sharing an actual evidence-based approach, but I gotta tell you, I was relieved. So it feels like I'm coming full circle today because Dr. B has an incredible follow-up to Fiber Fueled, the Fiber Fueled Cookbook, coming out May 17th, just two weeks after, you guessed it, good for your gut. This episode has so much incredible information inspired by the book, including how to figure out and, yes, improve your food intolerances, including histamine intolerance. We talk about how fiber just might be the sexiest part of a plant-based diet, how you can begin to repair your microbiome, but also how nutrition isn't everything and how stress and trauma affect the gut. Now, I know I'm biased, but I absolutely think you're going to want to run out and pre-order the fiber-fueled cookbook with all of its delicious recipes ASAP. So let's dive in and be sure to stay tuned to the very end for a little announcement. Okay, I have to start by telling you that of all of the people who could possibly appear on the All Sorts podcast, it is your name that's been on the top of my list, but also on the top of my listeners list since day one. So I know that we're all so very excited to have you. Well, Desiree Nielsen, I am honored to be here. You know, that, that makes me feel really good. And 
what I love is that where you and I are coming at this from our own unique perspective. So I'm a gastroenterologist. I'm not a registered dietitian. You're a registered dietitian. You have true expertise when it comes to dietetics, to nutrition. And what's interesting is that you and I are looking at the same literature, the same science, and you're on the other side of the continent from me. And we're finding the same thing. And here we are, like the worlds collide, and we end up on the All Sorts podcast together to talk about it. And I think that's really cool. And it has to breed confidence for people who are thinking about how to approach their diet, that you could be in Vancouver, and I could be in Charleston, South Carolina, and we can read science, read literature, and come to the exact same endpoint and be like, voila, you guys, this is how you do it. You're so right, because I think particularly one of the perils of seeking out nutrition information online is that it seems like so many of us have differing opinions, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But definitely as a registered dietitian, you know, like I wish that more gastroenterologists were curious about nutrition. And I certainly, if I had my like bucket list that all gastroenterologists were (laughs) plant-based, like how, because you didn't start out on your medical journey plant-based like how did going plant-based change your perspective on your practice i think i had to experience it myself because it was not a part of my formal education went through four years of medical school and during that time i had a two-week course on nutrition and what they taught me was not practical nutrition like how to talk to a real human being about what to eat It was like, hey, here's this weird vitamin deficiency that you're probably never going to see in your career. (laughs) And we're going to give you a multiple choice quiz at the end of this. And we're going to make sure that you know what the five symptoms of this rare like vitamin B6 deficiency are, right? So it really wasn't that helpful. And I think, you know, the reality is that if we're not taught that in medical school, how can we expect busy doctors where like I was working six days a week, 16 hours a day, how can I be expected reasonably to pick up nutrition and make this a part of my clinical practice if we're not actually educating people in the right way to do this? And of course, there's this other element that at least is true in the United States, and I believe it's also true in Canada, which is that doctors are not compensated to take the time to talk about nutrition with their patients. And that's problematic because good nutritional conversations do take time. And so do we expect doctors to do it out of the goodness of their heart? Because that's not really fair. That's not the way that everyone else is expected to work. So anyway, yeah, you alluded to this, you know, I was on this journey and the lifestyle habits that I had and the dietary patterns that I had that frankly, I was raised on, I doubled down on those ideas and I really elevated convenience above everything else when I became busy during my medical training. And I saw my health start to get away from me. I was 50 pounds overweight, high anxiety, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, very low self-esteem. Things were going very well for me professionally. I didn't feel that way. I didn't love myself. I didn't love the person that I saw in the mirror. And I needed, I knew I needed a change. Being a very type A, I was like, you know what? I'll just exercise my way out of this. Because if I do that, then I can eat whatever I want. So I was doing like no exaggeration, 
six days a week, 45 minutes of strength training. And then I would either, if it was the winter time, I would jump on the treadmill and do a 5k. And if it was the summertime, I would jump in the pool and do somewhere between 50 and hundred laps. And I got strong. I could swim really well, but these issues were still there. And my life changed when I met the person who ironically turns out to now be my wife. And we've built our family together, but we were just like on a first date, getting to know one another. And I look across and like, you know, here I am with the pork chop and here's this person who ordered just like literally a plate full of plants. It wasn't even on the menu. It was just like, let me order five sides and just put them all on one plate for me, please. And I was like, this is bizarre. Who is this person? You know, <laughs> this was 2012. And like, I knew no one who was vegan, let alone, like, I didn't know anyone who was vegan. I didn't know anyone who was vegetarian. So, but what I did see is that this was a person who she cleaned her plate. She ate until she was full. She was satisfied. She raved about how delicious it was. And then when we were done, I had to go home and put on a pair of sweatpants and make groaning noises. And she was ready for like phase two of the date. Yeah. And it opened my eyes and it led to me ultimately starting to transition, not like instantaneously, but just like small baby steps towards a more plant predominant diet. I was probably the least plant-based person on the planet. Well, not the least, there are some people who are doing carnivore right now, but <laughs> I was pretty bad. And so I started to make this transition. And as I did, the more that I did this, the better I felt my energy levels instantly surged. I felt it like I, I saw a change in my skin and my hair. And then all of a sudden it's just like all these health issues that I'd had start to improve. And it transformed my life to the point that I became intellectually curious and started to read at night. Like everyone else is asleep and I'm up reading nutrition research and then bringing it into my clinic and seeing radical transformations in my patients and asking the question, why is this not a part of my training? Why are we not doing this for everyone? And feeling like clearly the cause of these health issues that I see in my patients is not the absence of a pill, that there is, and there is stuff going on here that's at the root of it that we actually can address. We just identify it, line it up and create a plan in the exact same way that we do in all of medicine, line it up, create a plan. So anyway, this ultimately, <laughs> led to a sequence of events where it's like, I have to share the story. This is too good. Everyone needs to know this. Okay. Let me start an Instagram account. Okay. Let me go on podcasts. Okay. Let me write a book. Okay. Let me meet up with Desiree Nielsen on the all sorts podcast <laughs> and let's have a conversation. Okay. Well, that is absolute flattery that you might, you know, connect the dots in that way, but I, your book, I mean, Fiber Fueled is changing lives. And I think what's so exciting as a practitioner is when we find something that helps us do our job better, you know, we can be more effective. We're in this work to help people heal, to help people feel well. And, you know, plant-based nutrition is such a gift because 
you know, it works, it works. And as you, as you said, you know, on that first date with your now wife, it's joyful, right? To put a bunch of plants on your plate. It's like, no, let me eat with gusto. This isn't, you know, this isn't me picking at my plate. I want to eat with gusto. I want to feel full. I want to feel satisfied and I want to feel really good. And I think before you sort of turn that tide into plant-based nutrition, it might feel like, oh, I can't eat this. And, oh, I can't eat this. And, oh, maybe I can't have that again, but it's such an abundant, delicious and exciting way to eat. And there's like, it checks all the boxes like, oh, I can feel really good. Oh, maybe my health stuff can clear up. Oh, and I can really love what I eat. Like there's, it's just such an awesome message and a joyful message to be able to share with people too. I love that. And I think the diets of depravity, that's no way to go through life where you feel like you're running away from food monsters. I think that it's so much more healthy for us emotionally and in terms of our relationship with our food to instead like gravitate towards the food that attracts us and to be able to consume that food without restriction to not count calories, to not be like counting macros, but instead to just look at a plate full of delicious, colorful food that you cannot wait to devour and to eat that food until you are full and then to receive the health benefits that come from that. That's, you know, I mean, isn't that the perfect diet? Isn't that what we all want? Yeah, exactly. I want to start to like tease out how plants do all of these amazing, it's like plants are really awesome. So just in case people aren't convinced on how they work, like, let's start to talk about like, why, you know, particularly fiber, because you are fiber fueled, because I think fiber is something we talk a lot about, but not everyone fully understands what it is. So can we talk about like, what exactly is fiber? Like, are there different types of fiber? Like, is everything a fiber? Like, how does it actually work? Like, what is the stuff in food that's doing this for us? Yeah. If I have my way, I will transform your view of fiber, not you, Desiree, but the people who are at home listening to us right now. You know, I want you to walk into this conversation with the typical view of fiber, which is, oh, it's so boring. It's so boring. That's what my grandma used to stir in her orange drink so that she could have a <laughs> bowel movement. Like, why would I care about that? And besides, it just goes in the mouth and comes out the other end. It does nothing. It's inert. Well, that's not actually the story here. What we're talking about is, I think, incredibly exciting. Dare I go so far as to say sexy? Because like, we should feel that good about fiber because it's a game changer. And I would argue that this is our most pressing nutritional deficiency. Like most people are not thinking about fiber. I hear so much conversation about you know B12 and omega-3s and what, whatever. Protein. But, yeah, protein, protein deficiency, like literally basically <laughs> does not exist with the rare exception of the people who have like very, very serious medical, chronic medical issues. Aside from that, like protein deficiency in our society, we're fortunate really doesn't exist. And so, but on the flip side, like fiber deficiency is so ubiquitous that it's actually very sad because when we try to do high quality fiber research, we discover like one of the approaches that we'll often take is that we will divide a group of people up into, okay, like here are the top 20% of fiber consumers and let's compare them to the bottom 20% of fiber consumers. And what we discover is that like even the high fiber consumers in the United States or in North America, even 
that population is still below the minimum recommended amount of fiber on a daily basis. So why is this such a nutrient of importance? Why, do, why does Dr. B like care about fiber this much? Well, because we have to look at what happens when we consume fiber, when it goes in the mouth and the path that it takes, which I, I think is far different than perhaps what you have been told in the past. Fiber goes in the mouth and it passes through the small intestine where most digestion takes place unchanged. And this is a beautiful thing because what we're doing is we're actually delivering it, the fiber intact to the colon, which is where our microbiome lives. Waiting in our colon, there are 38 trillion microbes. As alive as you and I are, they are alive. They have personalities. Some of them are grumpy. Some of them are very chill and easy to get along with. Some of them, they just want to fix you up and help you out. These microbes, they, they have different skill sets. Like certain ones can do certain things. They, they don't all do the same thing. And these microbes also have unique food and dietary preferences. But their preferred food is fiber. And when fiber enters into the colon, these microbes, they get into an absolute feeding frenzy. They get to eat. You are supporting them. And when this happens, they grow stronger. And as a result of that, they become more capable of doing their job, which is to support your health. These microbes are connected to so much that matters for human health, not just digestion, but our immune system, our metabolism, our hormonal balance, our mood, cognition, memory, the way our brain works, our genetic expression. It all comes back in some way to these microbes. And we want them to be healthy. When we consume fiber, that's one of the ways that we can fuel them. We can empower them, empower the microbes. And then what they do is they turn around, they transform it. Fiber doesn't go out the other end. Fiber doesn't disappear in the colon. Fiber undergoes transformation by gut microbes and turned into the most anti-inflammatory molecule that I have ever discovered in all of my scientific reading, the short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids, many people have heard of butyrate is one of them. They have anti-inflammatory properties that occur throughout the entire body. Like in the colon, they are helping to support the good microbes, to suppress the bad microbes, to repair the lining of the colon, which basically means to reverse leaky gut. They directly suppress colon cancer cells. They will connect to our immune system. 70% of our immune system sits right there. They will spread through the bloodstream, go throughout the entire body, crossing the blood brain barrier, entering into the brain. There's ways in which they work there. I mean, it's, this is powerful stuff. We only get it by consuming fiber. And problem is that most of us are not really doing that. So how do we accomplish this? Well, it's not very complicated. Fiber is found in all plants. Every single plant has fiber. And then I have to mention this because I'm sure someone will call me out for missing this if I don't. Mushrooms also contain fiber. And mushrooms technically are not plants, they're fungi, but we will consider them honorary plants for the purposes of what we're doing. And so 
when we consume plants, whole food, plant-based, we are empowering our microbes with fiber. And one of the keys, as you know, Desiree, as you wrote about in your book, is variety. Every single plant has fiber, but every single plant has unique types of fiber. These gut microbes are picky eaters. They don't all want kale, as shocking as that may be. So when we eat a wide variety of plants, then what we do is we actually feed and nurture a wider variety of these gut microbes. And this is not just Dr. B's theory on how to support a healthy gut microbiome with the way that you eat. This is actually scientifically validated by the American Gut Project, which is, by the way, far more than just the United States of America. This was the largest study to date to allow us to make connections between our diet and lifestyle choices and the health within our gut microbiome. And it was from representing people from across the planet. And what they found in this study was that there was one clear-cut, single, most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome, and that was the diversity of plants within your diet. So when you eat diversity, diversity on your plate translates into diversity in your microbiome, and that is a healthy gut microbiome. You know, and I love that you you highlighted the idea of variety because I think very much in our sort of take a pill society, be like, "Mm, I hear you. Okay. Fiber is good. I'm just going to go buy a fiber supplement and like pop that and still just continue to eat my like, you know, like French fries and Big Macs and forget about it. But the idea that you like, you can't possibly replicate the diversity of putting more plants on your plate by simply like scooping up a little, you know, I love psyllium and we do use it in our practice for, you know, certain people and certain times, but like, you can't just like psyllium your way out of a diverse plant-based diet. Yeah. And I also think that I'm probably, to be completely frank, I'm, I'm probably over emphasizing the importance of the number of grams of fiber. So I actually don't think it's necessarily just the grams of fiber. I mean, I do think that people need to consume an adequate amount, but as you alluded to, Desiree, this is not like go take 30 grams of a fiber supplement here and that's going to heal all your gut health issues. But instead, like I say, stop counting calories, start counting plants. Stop counting grams of fiber, start counting plants. And when you make this a core central dietary philosophy, you will naturally be gravitating towards healing foods that you are consuming with an abundance mindset. And guess what? I can assure you that if you focus on eating more varieties of plants, like unless you are trying to prove me wrong, you will get plenty of fiber in your diet and it will be a beautiful thing. Yeah. Love that. This is maybe the perfect place to pop in a little reader question because we have lots of reader questions. So I chose a handful. You sit on the scientific advisory board for a company called Zoe, which is a personalized nutrition driven app and research, everything, all the good things behind it. And this person used Zoe and it said that their results said that suggested they were missing good bugs. So how do we improve this? Is it just about eating more plants, eating a variety of plants, or is there anything else you would recommend someone do if they're like, oh, hey, it looks like I am missing some of these good bugs? I think that the first thing is to enter into this conversation with some humility in the sense that there's a lot that we don't know and we're learning every day. 
And there are things that I'm about to mention that like literally are a new research paper that came out in the past year. So if you had been interviewing me a year ago, I wouldn't have been able to say that. And so, and we'll have new stuff coming down the pipeline. We're learning a lot. We are just, just getting started when it comes to the gut microbiome. And I'm of the belief, this is a game changer and we're going to keep getting better. So with regard to um, this question, you know, is eating a variety and a diversity of plants the key here? I think it's part of the package, but it is not the whole package. And one of the things that you really emphasize in your book, Desiree, that I wholeheartedly agree with is the importance of a holistic view of us, right? This is not biochemistry, right? You are not just the product of food meets enzymes, all right? So we are far more complicated than that. We are emotion-driven. We have personalities. We sleep. We exercise. We poop. Except for my wife. She doesn't do that, but everyone else does. <laughs> and I think it's important to zoom out from, because it's so easy for you and I to like emphasize nutrition. Yet there are these studies that like the key to a longer, healthier life are your interpersonal relationships. Yeah. And so do I think sleep is important? Yes. Do we have studies where you can enhance the diversity of your gut microbiome with exercise? Yes. But I also think that it's about where you are from an emotional perspective. I think it's about your relationship with food. I think that it's potentially having things that you have been exposed to either in the past or in the present that are still causing trouble. So trauma. And I think we have to be conscious of the fact that all these things are there and something that are worthy of being addressed and being a part of our holistic game plan and strategy to enhance the gut microbiome. You know, one thing I'll just bring up real quick, and I, I'd be curious to hear, Desiree, what your experience with this has been, but in my GI practice, so my GI practice evolved to become like basically, I started taking care of the people who were failing with other doctors. And one of the things that I discovered is that many times it was not just like changing their nutrition. That was the key. Yeah. Many times it was that there was some sort of traumatic issue that was holding them back and turning our attention to that ended up being actually the key to the entire thing. And quick example, I had a patient recently who she has ulcerative colitis and we had been struggling, struggling, struggling for years, trying to get her into remission and to sustain that remission, to make her feel like a normal human being. And nothing was working. And I was pulling out all of Dr. B's little tricks. And then one day she comes in recently and she says, Dr. B, you're not going to believe this. I feel like myself again. This is the best I've felt literally in years. I said, what changed? She said, I had a job where I dreaded going to work every day. 
It was a hostile environment. I was being bullied by my boss. And I think that that was affecting me. And I left that job and took a new one and I'm happy and I feel safe and I feel comfortable with the people I work with. Have you seen this, Desiree? You know, again and again, and thank you so much for bringing this up because I feel so often in this space, we have folks who are like, forget nutrition. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Give me a pill. If it fixes me, great. And then we have the opposite. We have the people who believe in the power of food, but then often as they start researching, as they start trying to make change, they begin to hold so tightly to nutrition. And, you know, there's a couple of things that we see often surrounding this. One is that fear of food and distrust of both food and their body, because, you know, for years they've been going through these symptoms and it is a literal disconnect. They're like, I don't know what to eat. I am terrified of everything I eat because just when I think I've figured it out, then I have a terrible episode or I'm quote unquote doing everything right. Why is my body betraying me like this? So I do feel that that plays into it a lot is this idea of being able to feel if not comfortable in your body, but that your body is not actually betraying you, that your body is giving you information. And that's something that we talk to people about all the time, that these symptoms are information. Your body is always trying to heal. And so we need to figure out what that information is. We need to work with the body as opposed to against the body. And that's like a really big theme in our practice. The other thing that I think is so interesting, you know, particularly I'm an IBSer and I, we have a lot of IBSers in our practice is that, you know, there's an increased like association with early life trauma and irritable bowel syndrome, which is not talked about. So I wish as a dietitian, I could say nutrition is hundred percent. I would love to be able to say nutrition is hundred percent of all of this. And it's a huge, hugely foundational part, but trauma and the way that our nervous system regulates. I mean, that plays into our digestive because our, our digestive tract is so heavily innervated. Like it is, there's a reason why, you know, Dr. Gershon called it the second brain. So, yeah, I do think that's a really important part of sort of figuring this out. Yes, nutrition, but we don't have to grasp it as tightly as we think we need to, because there's so many other things going on. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can, some people, I find that they double and triple and quadruple down on the nutrition thing. And to the point of almost becoming perfectionistic about it. And it actually starts to, I think, stand in the way of their healing. I think that when we become too perfectionistic, like no one has a perfect diet. It does not exist. Like the, the entire concept of perfect period is that's a human creative fabrication. There is no perfect on the entire planet. It's just, we're all just doing our best. So I do think that this is like one of the things that can stand in the way. And one of my mentors at the University of North Carolina is Dr. Douglas Strassman, who's a good friend of mine. I'm actually writing the foreword to one of his new books that he has coming out. And he actually started the Rome Foundation and is the first author for each edition of the Rome Criteria, which is the book that created irritable bowel syndrome and really has allowed us to move forward. And I worked in his clinic and it was frankly kind of bizarre relative to modern healthcare. 
because it was not designed to make money. It was designed to help people heal. And we would, no exaggeration, Desiree, we would book two people per day. <laughs> Amazing. And we had a multidisciplinary team. So Dr. Drossman, you know, myself, the GI fellow, we would have a registered dietitian. We would have someone from the eating disorder clinic who's like a PhD level disorder, eating disorder specialist, right? And someone who does, does cognitive behavioral therapy and things of that variety. And we would go into the room, spend a half hour, come out, talk about it, go back into the room, spend the half hour. And what I learned in this clinic is that it's actually like the most challenging cases to heal. It's not the absence of pills. It's not that we're making the wrong diagnosis. Typically the most challenging patients to heal are the ones who they just need more time with the doctor and they need to emotionally unpack some of these challenges they have. You know, and we, we see this in our practice as well. And I, particularly as a dietitian, like we're very privileged that we sit down with folks for an hour, you know, like our initial consultation is an hour and it lets us get into so many of these things. And I do think there's an enormous power in being heard you know, in terms of like, just as you said, sort of unpacking what's been going on for you in the last two, five, 10 years. And, you know, there's so much, there's a lot of trauma in, in, in not being well. And I don't think that we sort of like give it enough shift, you know, because we're always like, oh, do this, then that. So if you have symptom X, we give you pill Y or like dietary strategy Y and, yeah, I think that oftentimes people just don't have enough time to understand their condition and they don't have enough time with a doc and they don't have enough time to feel like they are heard. And then they, and this is why they go on the internet, right? And then they go on the internet and then they're fed all of this stuff by, oh, well, gluten causes inflammation or lectin, lectins are going to destroy your gut and cause it to leak. And when people then see, oh, if I eat certain foods, I get these symptoms, it just sort of it tends to piggyback. It's like, okay, so that confirms. So that's probably the lectins. Like I can't eat wheat because of the gluten or because of the lectins. And I, this sort of like brings me into another question that I really wanted to ask you, because when we're saying plant-based diets are so incredible and, you know, fiber is going to change your gut and people are often worried about eating a more plant-based diet because, you know, if they eat things like wheat berries, or if they eat things like chickpeas or lentils, it causes symptoms for them. And one of the things that I love most about the new fiber field cookbook is that you actually have a strategy. You explain what these intolerance type reactions are, and then you have a strategy called growth to help people understand them. And what really excites me is move through them. So can you tell us a little bit about the growth strategy? Yeah, more than, more than happy to, you know, I, I think that, so let me start here as a medical doctor, I have discovered through my years of experience that the first step in trying to help my patients is to understand what's going on and any success that I have downstream from there really is contingent on having that like very clear understanding in the first place. Otherwise we're just throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks. And frankly, that's where many people are these days is they're just trying stuff, see what happens. So, so I created the growth strategy with the intent of 
giving people an approach that makes sense that like anyone can remember and that we you just kind of move through the steps that are laid out as part of the acronym because in this case even though growth is like i preach growth i pre you know i preach abundance type mindset so it is part of the philosophy but in this case it's actually the acronym for the approach to healing our gut and so i want to walk people through what the growth strategy is in a sequence of letters and you're going to see like basically this sequence that kind of all plays out together and it starts to make sense so we start with g g stands for genesis yes that is phil collins band i love phil collins big fan in this case the question first is what is the root of the problem that's where we need to begin we need to understand what that is and let's not automatically make the assumption right off the bat that this is irritable bowel syndrome or that this is quite simply a food intolerance. Let's make sure that we're not missing something. Let's have a thorough and adequate evaluation and turn over the appropriate stones to get answers. One of the things that you did in your book, Desiree, is you laid out things like this. You laid out for people ideas of specific health-related issues that can affect their ability to enjoy a plant-based diet. I think it's very important to start with that. And so quick example, I had someone that I took care of who she was told she had irritable bowel syndrome. Now, as you know, Desiree, and I'm guessing most of your listeners know irritable bowel syndrome, there is no blood test. There is no CAT scan or imaging test. This is a diagnosis of exclusion where you meet specific criteria. I mean, to, to be diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, you have to meet the criteria, which are that you're having chronic abdominal discomfort in association with food and that there's a change in bowel habits, either diarrhea or constipation, or in some cases, both. And one of the um, hallmark signs of irritable bowel is that your symptoms improve when you have a bowel movement. So anyway, this patient, she had been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and suffering for like 10 years without solutions and just kind of floating through the healthcare system frustrated. It was a problem. It was never irritable bowel syndrome. She just had not had the appropriate test. And once the label was applied, no one ever went back to question, have we adequately evaluated to rule out alternative explanations for this? What she had was a congenital deficiency of the sucrase enzyme. Sucrase is an enzyme that allows us to break down sucrose, which is table sugar. Of course, table sugar is everywhere. But even if you were to like completely eliminate processed foods, you would still have sucrose in your diet because you're going to find it in very healthy foods like beets, sweet potatoes. They have sucrose. So anyway, every time that she would consume something with sucrose, she would get symptoms. It was basically disrupting her, her life. A simple breath test, checking for the levels of this enzyme allowed us to discover that she was deficient. And she took a supplement, which actually was, is natural, meaning that the origin of the supplement is natural. And she took a supplement to improve her enzyme levels and from that point forward, her symptoms went away entirely. 
She never had irritable bowel syndrome. She was misdiagnosed. So let's make sure, step one, that we know what we're treating. G is for genesis. Next up, R, O, W. I'm going to put these three in a package together because it's not just a sequence. It's more like a dance that they're doing together. R for restrict, O for observe, W for work it back in. If we want to know what's causing our food intolerances, our digestive symptoms with specific foods, there is no blood test. There is no stool test that will answer this question for us. We have to turn to the old-fashioned gold standard approach, which is temporary restriction, observation of how you feel, and then working the food back in and continuing to observe how you feel. These are the um, concepts behind a uh, dietary restriction diet. But the key here is this is not permanent restriction. This is a temporary thing. You're, it's like flipping the, the switch on a, a light and, okay, on, off, on, off. And how do I feel on both sides of that? And that allows you to identify where, like, is it, is it milk? Is it lactose? Is it gluten intolerance, which can be the fructans? There's a number of explanations. This is the way that you first identify what the food is. And second, this is how you identify how much of the food causes the problem. So once we identify this through ROW, restrict, observe, work it back in, now we can turn our attention to fixing it. Food intolerances can be fixed. This is a message of hope. You are not locked in for the rest of your life to suffering with these issues. You also are not best served by eliminating these foods from your diet. Your ability to process and digest food is relative to the amount of the food that you are consuming on a routine basis. It's like exercise. If I stop going to the gym for the next month, I'm not going to be in as good shape as I've been. If I do more, I'll grow stronger and be more capable of lifting weights in the gym. So T stands for train your gut. Train your gut. And the general concept, which by the way, is exactly the same thing that you teach Desiree, mm -hmm. is that you start low and you go slow and you ramp it up over time, just like exercise. There is an amount that you're capable of lifting. There is certain things that you're good at when it comes to exercise. There are certain things that you're not good at. I'm a six foot four, 205 pound guy. I'm guessing, guessing Desiree, that if we went into the gym, I would probably be lifting a little bit more than you. Oh, probably more than just a little bit. <laughs> Flip side, we throw on our yoga pants and we go out for a run and I am guaranteeing you, you are burning me, okay? Because I am not a runner. <laughs> I'm just not. And I've never been really that good at it. I have my strengths and I have my weaknesses. When it comes to food, we're just like that. We have strengths and weaknesses. If you know where your weaknesses are, which you've already identified through restrict, observe, work it back in, then you can turn towards working on those weaknesses. Start low, go slow, ramping up this food over the course of time. And you are, by doing this, you are challenging your gut to keep up with you. And guess what it'll do? It will. And over time, it will grow stronger. You will enhance your ability to digest and process food. And you will find yourself one day 
capable of consuming these foods without restriction. And now the food intolerance is no longer a food intolerance. Now the food is your friend again. And finally, the last part is H, which stands for holistic healing. We've already touched on some of the concepts here. I think it's important to bear in mind that again, you are not just biochemistry. You are not just like food chemicals and enzymes meeting. You are a whole human being, how you feel, how you feel about your food, all these different things have a massive effect. So let's look at ways to lift up our gut and make it stronger and healthier without even frankly lifting a fork. Let's, let's work on the stuff that has nothing to do with nutrition. And guess what? You'll find that your nutrition comes less with less effort as a result of that. You know, I think what you just said in the last five minutes of this podcast is probably going to change thousands of lives because so many people who come in, they experience these symptoms, they come at it from either the internet or they go and get a food sensitivity test and they have this idea that their food intolerances are a permanent fact about them. I can never eat chickpeas again because they do this to my body. The idea, like it's a complete mindset shift. The idea that wherever we are at now is changeable. Like we are able to grow, we are able to heal, changes the mindset forever, you know, and that's such a powerful tool. And particularly when it comes to plant-based foods, you know, you get this, this sort of like adage, oh, well, like these foods are hard to digest. Yeah, they are. And that's exactly why they are so good for you. If all we ate was baby pablum, our gut and our microbiome would not be doing very well at all. Yeah. If you run away from these foods, so they are, first of all, I think it's very important for us as advocates for a plant-based lifestyle to be completely transparent with the challenges that exist, because if we are not, then we are selling a false dream. And then I think this is how you end up with people who are like looking at this as more of a fad. They jump into it. They don't like it. They quit. They move on to something else. Right. And instead what we're talking about is like, this is not a diet. This is a lifestyle and this is about, you know, working on this and making it your own. Like it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. It can be whatever it is that you want it to be. Just recognizing though, that there is this path that exists where you can take one step in that direction. And science is saying that this is a good step towards better health. And you can go and take your time with this. It doesn't have to be an overnight transformation. It was not for me. It took years. And I think it's important for people to understand that those who need this the most are also the ones who struggle the most with it. And it's one of these, you know, sort of challenges of communication of science that sometimes what seems very intuitive, like, hey, that hurts me. Why am I eating that? Let me eliminate that. Well, that is completely intuitive. That makes so much sense. I get it. But the problem is that that's not actually the way that our body works and that when we eliminate those foods, we grow actually weaker and less capable, right? That would be functionally the equivalent, like using the exercise analogy, that would be functionally the equivalent of if you hurt your knee saying, well, I'm just never going to walk again. Mm -hmm. You'll never grow stronger if that's the choice that you make, but maybe you don't feel the pain in your knee. 
flip side, like if someone hurts their knee, I think we all know you go to the physical therapist, they have a plan. That plan involves working in incremental fashion towards your goal of getting strong again, getting your function back in your leg. And in that process, there may be some pain along the way, not like you're subjecting yourself for fun, but there may be some pain. And so I think it's important for people to understand that there's this process that exists towards moving towards a more plant-based lifestyle. And I think that one of the keys is your book and my book, we're trying to empower you with the knowledge. And with that, you will know how to go about doing this. And, you know, thank you for that. I think, I think it is a really important because we do tend to have this all or nothing mindset. I mean, so many things in our society, but particularly around our own wellness and I'm sure Dr. B, you've seen this so many times in your practice because we've seen it so many times too, is that, you know, the people who are the sickest, the people who have Crohn's disease and still have 20 bowel movements a day, you know, they come to us eating like Red Bull, (laughs) like drinking Red Bull, eating white bread, because in the moment, in the moment that doesn't hurt their stomachs. And so to have the conversation that what feels gentlest to you now will actually perpetuate these symptoms in the future is a, it's a challenging shift to make. And, you know, so often with clients like that, you know, we we're starting so small We're like, they have not seen a legume, you know, since like before they were streaming Netflix. And so we're like, you know what? A tablespoon of hummus is great because it's really tiny and it's blended you know, that, that blending process has done a lot of that digestion for you. And we're just going to start with a tablespoon of hummus and see how that goes. You know, sometimes with our sickest patients and clients, we're just trickling something in, you know, we're not going to like a kale salad overnight. Like that's not what this looks like. It's the green smoothie, you know, with gentler greens, like baby spinach and to watch that process transform and to watch people eat all of these foods that they never thought that they could eat and then also see how much better they feel. It takes time. It takes a lot of patience, but it's so incredible as a dietitian to be able to watch this because they just had this idea of like, this is how it's going to go. I can't eat all of this stuff. Like I'm always going to have 20 bowel movements a day. And when they get it down to three, it just changes. It changes everything. I mean, this is what you're describing right now is what I love about your new book, Good for the Gut. So what I love about it is that you are describing your clinical practice. This is the way that you approach a person who's sitting in front of you and you're trying to help them work through these challenges that exist. And you have transformed that into the pages of a text where a person who is on the other side of the planet, they could be in Australia, they pick up this book, they read it. And they understand this methodology, this approach that you're describing. And one of the things that I really found to be super creative, I've never seen anyone present it exactly like this, and I loved it from from your book, is the, the steps. So, you know, you and I are having this conversation, and it's a bit nebulous. I think this is where we run into trouble is it's a bit nebulous for us to say, well, just start low and go slow, right? And... Like, I, I mean, look, it, it can work, right? But it's so much better when we actually just kind of make it easy for people and we hold their hand a little bit. So in your book, 
you basically broke the recipes up into three major classes, soothe, heal, protect. And those are the steps that a person would go through. And if you are the person who has no digestive issues, boom, dive in, enjoy the recipes. There's 90 of them. They're delicious. Flip side, you're the person who's coming into this the way that you're describing. Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome, tons of food intolerances. And you're like, where do I begin? Can you make this easy for me, please? Yes, we can. Start with the soothe recipes. That's what they're there for. And when you're feeling good about those, graduate to the heal recipes. Work through that. Then when you feel good about those, move on to the protect recipes. So I really thought that, that was really creative, Desiree, the way that you did that. I loved it. And this is exactly the approach that I think people need to take to like working through these nutritional challenges that they have. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you. And it's coming, coming from you. There's no higher praise I can imagine. So (laughs) I appreciate that. I, you know, I think one of the things that both of our books do because access to quality healthcare is such a privilege, right? It's such a privilege. And you know, I wish that everyone could come to see the dietitians in my practice because this is this is what we do every single day, but not everyone has the money for that. And I'm I'm so passionate that, you know, we're able to put this information out there because it is always best to have a practitioner at your side, but that's not available to everyone. So you can go to the library and get your book and you may not have ever had access to a vis- physician who was like, hey, maybe it's a sucrase, maybe it's not IBS, maybe it's a sucrase deficiency, or maybe it's bile acid diarrhea, which is, you know, another thing that IBS often masquerades at. And, but now this person has this information in their hands and they're empowered in a way that they wouldn't have been empowered otherwise, which is so incredible. This is the beauty. You know, this is what I've discovered as the beauty of writing a book. My motivation for writing fiber field in the first place was that I was out there sort of like pounding the drum on social media, in podcasts, and it's wonderful. And thousands of people can listen in, but I can only take it so far during a conversation on those forums. And so the beauty of writing the book is that like, you know, whether it's your book or it's my book, you are getting all of our years of experience, all of our education, And literally we spent a year of our life. (laughs) There is a respect that exists. I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit for people at home. There being an author, it's like, there's a respect that exists among authors because we know how much effort a person puts into that. And so I think it's kind of cool to create that access to that information for people that you could get this at your library for free. And it's like, Desiree Nielsen or Dr. B, they spent an entire year putting these pages meticulously into the word of the into the pages of this book so that I could absorb this information and acquire this knowledge and better myself. And I can receive that information basically for free. That's pretty cool, I think. It's so cool. I love it so much. You know, and it probably leads me to the other thing that I found really helpful and useful about your book particularly because there's so much misinformation about it and people are struggling with it. And that's histamine intolerance. So histamine intolerance is such a nebulous, 
tricky, sneaky sort of thing. And I think there's a lot that we don't understand. And there's definitely a lot that we don't understand if we're looking on the internet, (laughs) trying to figure out what's going on with our body. So can we talk about histamines a little bit? Like, what are histamines? How do they cause reactions in our body? Like, how is this a thing for us? So I felt compelled to include histamine intolerance in my book because even though I I feel that there's clearly an opportunity for the data to mature when it comes to histamine intolerance, like we're still at a pretty early phase of understanding this. And I'll explain why in a second, but I felt compelled to include this in the book because I think that there's adequate, we know enough to allow people to identify whether or not this is an issue for them. And there are people out there right now, just like I was talking about the sucrase deficiency a moment ago, it was never ear roll bowel syndrome, it was sucrase deficiency. There are people out there right now that this is going to change their life. And so I couldn't resist the opportunity to do that and include this in the book. Histamine intolerance, it's a bit complicated. Desiree, mm-hmm. we could do an entire episode together on this topic. We could. <laughs> and this chapter of my book, I actually has the most references of any chapter in the entire book. It's got 90 references in one chapter. So I spent a lot of time digging into this and trying to figure out, figure it out and try to create solutions for people. Histamine is a normal part of our body. It is not to be vilified. All right. It's a, a signaling molecule. All right. So like it's a part of normal physiologic processes. Like the way our body is supposed to work includes histamine. But like so many other things about human health, when we fall out of balance, when we have some like raging excess, that can be problematic and it can trigger symptoms. And those histamine receptors that are are a normal part of human physiology and they're throughout the entire body, those histamine receptors in the setting of histamine intolerance, they're getting overactivated by histamine, which then leads to the symptoms that people experience. The number one symptom is gas and bloating. If you are listening to this show and you have gas and bloating and you have never explored a histamine intolerance before, you, I mean, I really think that it's worth at least checking out and seeing how you respond to this. So the number one symptom is gas and bloating, but it can be many different symptoms. Yes, digestive symptoms. So abdominal discomfort, cramping, nausea, diarrhea, constipation. Those are all possibilities. But it also starts to get outside the gut. And some of the symptoms that are sort of classic, runny nose after a meal, like you get congested. Uh, A headache could be skin changes. So like feeling flushed or a rash or hives, or it could be a cardiac thing where like you get a rapid heart rate or you feel lightheaded. All right. So now you're not going to diagnose histamine intolerance based upon symptoms alone ever. What you're going to do is you're going to say, look, a couple of these symptoms that Dr. B just mentioned, I've had that. I've had that after a meal. And if, if that's where you are, then you have taken an appropriate step towards answering the question, do I have histamine intolerance? There's only one way to answer that question. And there is no blood test that will do it for us. It has to be through dietary approach. 
you have to go on a low histamine diet. Now there is no like histamine free diet. That's not possible. Histamine is literally in all of our food. And the reason why is because histamine is actually the product of microbes. These microbes are not just in our colon. They're everywhere. And, you know, our food supply has a microbiome. Like that plant that started off as a seed and then a sprout, and then it grew into a, a fertile, healthy plant. There were microbes that were a part of every single step that I just described. And you um, take that plant, like it's, it could be spinach and you pluck that spinach. And there's a period of time where that's like perfect for food consumption. And then eventually that, that spinach starts to wither and it turns brown, it shrivels up, and then it wants to go back to the soil. And guess what? The microbes are there for that too. They're a part of all of it. In this process, microbes will produce a, in, a, in the normal life cycle of our food. Microbes will produce histamine. The most classic histamine-rich foods are fermented foods. So that could be like sauerkraut, but it could also be alcohol or vinegar or chocolate. Sorry to break it to you guys. Those are fermented <laughs> foods, actually. Another classic histamine-rich food is fish. It's a part of the process that the fish goes through. If you were to catch the fish and consume it immediately, you would have no issue. But the fish is not consumed immediately. Perhaps it's been a couple days or a couple weeks since it was caught. And during that time, histamine is produced. And that can cause trouble with our body. Finally, when it comes to plants, um, there are four classic plants that cause histamine type issues. Spinach, eggplant, tomatoes, and it breaks my heart to say this, but avocados. I love them so much. So spinach, eggplant, tomatoes, and avocados, these are not the only foods that are relevant, but these are sort of the classics that you need to be aware of. Now, I am not saying that you eliminate these foods for the rest of your life, even if you have a histamine intolerance. What I am saying is that step one is, do you have a histamine intolerance? So let's answer that question. And the way that you do that is by consuming a low histamine diet. So the cool thing is that as part of doing a cookbook, I'm sharing recipes. So why not just give you the recipes to do a low histamine diet for two weeks? And you see how you feel. That's a part of the process that you, that you can go through. If you discover that you have histamine intolerance, you are not locked in and you are not on a restrictive diet for the rest of your life. There are ways in which you can improve and heal your gut. Let me give you two real quick. Number one, histamine intolerance is not just about the histamine. It's also about your defenses, the way that you protect yourself from excess histamine exposure. And when you have a damaged, injured gut, the tight junctions that help to keep this, the cell wall together, creating effectively the wall of a castle, they're busted open, right? Imagine that you're trying to defend a castle and there's a hole in the wall. It, you need to fix that wall. When you heal your gut, you will improve your tolerance to histamine. 
when you fortify your castle, you will improve your ability to tolerate these foods. The second thing is that imagine that you could have an army protecting this castle. Your body is already equipped with an enzyme called DAO, diamine oxidase. It actually breaks down histamine. So like if you get exposed to too much histamine, well, if you have enough DAO, you just, your body will take care of it. Now you could take a DAO supplement. They do exist. They're very expensive. They are. And most people like the companies that make them are not going to tell you what you're taking and putting in your body. It's the kidneys of pigs. So you can do that. But flip side, nature is highly intelligent and has created a far less expensive and also tasty way for you to accomplish this on an even higher level. When you sprout legumes, they produce DAO. Sprouted legumes produce DAO, particularly peas. If you sprout peas, you will have more DAO than you will find in the pig kidney supplement. And what's kind of fascinating is that nature adapts, just like our gut microbiome adapts, nature adapts to conditions and circumstances. If you sprout your peas in the dark, meaning you just like put them in a dark room or you cover them up, then you are actually putting stress on those peas and you bring out the best in them. You get way more DAO as a result of sprouting the peas in the dark. So a person who has histamine intolerance, like you could supplement with pig kidneys, but you could also just sprout some peas in the dark. It's dirt cheap and delicious and completely nutritious. And yes, it also has this medicinal property. Pretty cool. It's so cool. Plants are magic. They really are. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for that because I think histamine intolerance is one of those things where people will often default to a very, very restrictive diet on the internet. And we see people in our practice who come to us now in a weakened state, in a greatly weakened state, because they've been following this highly restrictive elimination diet for so long. And then they're like, they can't heal, right? They need that time to like, okay, so now we need to build your strength back up. We need to repair your gut. We need to repair your immune system. You know, you're probably like protein deficient at this point. And, you know, this is one of the times when maybe someone is eating absolutely no protein. And so to know that there are such simple, not easy, you know, eliminating, going on an even a two week elimination diet isn't easy, but simple ways to say, Hey, is this actually happening for me? And then, Oh, here's a path out of it. Totally. Yeah. And if you can just answer that first question, you know, you're doing the gold standard test. The gold standard test is two weeks of consuming a low histamine diet. You answered the question. And, you know, by the way, this really points out the reason why this has been such a challenge to bring to the forefront from a research perspective, which is that the only way to diagnose a histamine intolerance is to actually do the two week diet. And like, I'll just tell you that as a GI doctor, I never had a two week dietary plan in my clinic that I could hand to my patients and let alone like have a conversation for 15 minutes. You know, like I see my patients in 15 minutes, how am I supposed to do that? Right. Yeah. So this is the challenge of the real world that exists is standing in the way. It's not the histamine intolerance 
like doesn't exist or isn't worthy of research. It's that there are real challenges in applying our tools, given the circumstances and how the world works, how healthcare works. You know, and I think that's a really important part to highlight is that your healthcare practitioner is trying to do the best that they can for you, given the constraints that they're under. And, you know, this is why having access to podcasts and hopefully evidence-based internet sources and these books really help to fill in so that you can become more educated, more empowered. And it's not either or, but it's both in concert. You become empowered. You can ask questions of your healthcare practitioner and that might trigger something for them. And then they, they can help again, collaborate with you on your care. So true. I agree so yeah. much with that. I want to shift a little bit because we sort of opened the door to gut barrier dysfunction and the importance of the gut barrier, because, you know, there are some folks out there that claim that grains and beans actually foster gut barrier dysfunction, that old lectin causes leaky gut yarn. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about the science of why this is so incorrect? I mean, it's so much harder to disprove a person's claim than it is to make an inappropriate claim in the first place. (laughs) And so we've spent so much time, both you and I, trying to show the science of why these claims about, for example, lectins are quite simply not true. And so here, let me just kind of break this down real quick. So first of all, what happens when people eat beans? (laughs) Well, what we find is that people who eat beans, the most beans, our epidemiology studies indicate that they reduce their risk of heart disease. That's our number one cause of death. They reduce their risk of cancer. That's our number two cause of death. There's a number of other disease states or conditions that we could run through that, that the consumption of beans actually protect us. And so what we have found consistently in studies is that people live longer lives when they consume more beans. In fact, there was a recent study that was just published in the last couple of weeks where they modeled out longevity. Like they basically created a model for what predicts how long you are capable of living. And the beautiful thing is that they showed that shifting towards a more plant predominant diet was the key to basically adding years to your life. And you could make this change at a young age and add, you know, 13 years, and you can make this change later in life. Like you could be 60, 60 years old, make this change. You are adding years to your life, which is a beautiful thing. But what was the number one food in terms of adding years? It was beans. It was legumes. And when you start to look at this, you say, oh, well, how about the blue zones? What do they eat? The blue zones are the, the five places around the world where people have a disproportionate likelihood of living to hundred years old. What you find if you go to these five places, Sardinia, Okinawa, Japan, the Nicoya Peninsula, Greece, and finally, Loma Linda, California. Sorry, like I was like, okay, got to get through these five. So if you go to these five places, what you're going to find is that even though these are completely separate cultures, completely separate communities, every single one of them is heavy consumers of beans. Now you have been told that the lectins are the cause of our health issues in 2022 or whatever year you want to attribute that to. All right. The number one food when it comes to lectins are beans, our legumes. Are we eating more beans in 2022 than we were like, say our parents' generation when they were kids? No. 
We're eating 30% less than they were. We're eating less beans. So we're eating less beans, yet this is suddenly the cause of all of our health issues. How much are we consuming in terms of the beans? The average American right now per year is consuming six pounds of beans. That is nothing. nothing. Okay. So in an average week, an American may consume that much in meat in a week. And we're going to attribute all of these health issues to the beans that we're barely eating, like barely eating. This is ridiculous and it does not make sense. But if you step into this with an agenda where it's like, look, I am a medical doctor and my goal is to prove to you that lectins are causing your health issues. Well, you know, just like my mechanic could like completely deceive me because my mechanic understands things about cars that I just don't, or my attorney could completely deceive me, right? These people have expertise. A medical doctor can be very dangerous if they are trying to fulfill an agenda. And you can find research from test tubes that would support the idea that lectins are harmful. And I think it's very important to put this into the perspective of these are test tube studies. They are intended to create theories, ideas. They are not intended to be proof of principle ever. If we always followed test tube studies, we would have some really, really quacky ideas about healthcare. You have to do, you have to apply it to real people and see what happens. This is not about what happens when I mix some crazy concentration of lectins in a test tube with stuff. This is about what happens when real human beings eat beans. And I've already told you, when you eat beans, you live longer with less disease. Mic drop. Bye-bye, lectins. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, and it's, it comes back to that, you know, that notion that we're speaking about that people start to hold so tightly when people are unwell, they start to search for information that has not been provided to them yet by their dietitian or their doctor. And then they find these ideas and they're so, so convincingly written. So the arguments are delivered logically and beautifully. And you wonder, oh, maybe, maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is the thing that is making me sick. And so to sort of take that pause, take that breath and be like, but I remember, I remember Dr. B saying, look at all of these populations who consume beans and they are among those who live the longest on the entire planet. Like you just need those opportunities to provide that like gut check, really, you know, you're like, this seems convincing. No, 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 wait. This is not congruent with what I know to be true. And we just, we have to do these things again and again, because nutrition, we are making hundreds of decisions about nutrition every single day, you know, like we eat food multiple times a day. And so even me, even a dietitian, I need, I need those reminders about what my goals are, about what's good for me, about what feels good. We all need those reminders to be like, no, this is real. Stay the path, take a deep breath, just eat more plants. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and I, and I feel like it's, I feel for the people because we have transitioned from the information age where suddenly we have, we had access to information that we didn't before into this is the misinformation age and people, one of the things that we have to be very careful about is our confirmation bias. We, we all have it like every single one of us, myself included, 
and you search for the thing that's going to confirm your suspicion. So the problem is that you eat beans and you're like, oh, I don't feel well. Got gas and bloating, some cramping. And so you're like, okay, well, let me find someone who's going to tell me. I mean, you're not like consciously saying, let me find the one who's going to tell me that beans are bad for me, but you kind of do. And this is one of the things that we have to be very careful about is taking the time to take a step back, look at the big picture. And also like we have to have trusted sources. So I think it's very important to cite your research. In fiber fueled, I shared every single reference. You can get them for free. You don't have to buy the book. You can get them for free on my website. And I'm doing the same with the fiber fueled cookbook. And I would actually contend that probably this is the most references you will ever see in a cookbook ever in the history of the planet. But the point is that I don't share the references out of any other motivation other than this is transparent. Mm -hmm. Do what you want with the information. You can pull the reference and you can look at it. And if you disagree with me, then that's okay. That's your choice. Yeah, it's literally the opportunity to check my work. It's funny when I when I wrote Eat More Plants, my very academic dietitian mindset, all of my statements were numbered. And then I watched watched them rip it all out. It happened to me too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I actually I had like I wanted the references to be like at the bottom of every single page. And the problem is that the publisher, like you have to understand from their perspective, 600 references, no matter how small the font is is going to add like literally probably 60 pages to the back of the book. And from the publisher's perspective, they're just like, look, that's very expensive. When we're talking about printing books. Yeah. All of my references for good for your gut are like yours now because it got ripped from the book. Cause I actually wrote about 40,000 words too much for this cookbook. So <laughs> we pulled a lot of stuff, including the references and they're going to be available on my website, but it is so true. It's like, if you cite your sources, then that is the fact check. Here is exactly the studies I used. Read them. And this is, and I think this is the difference with scientific evidence-based approaches and others who just want to push their agenda, you know, particularly like the influencer type thing on Instagram, you know, people who won't allow you to at reply them, you know, to even say, hey, what is your source for that very intriguing and maybe a little bit odd statement to be able to say, nope, this is my research. Here is all the research you need and put that in someone's hands so that they can see it for themselves. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be said for if you listen to you, myself, Alan Desmond, one of my scientific advisory board members from Zoe, Tim Spector, who's in the UK. If you listen to these people, we're coming from different places. You're in Vancouver. I'm in Charleston. Alan and Tim are over in the UK, right? But we're all looking at science and we're all arriving at basically the exact same conclusions and we're coming at it from different perspectives. So I think that there's like a very slight tweak of the final message. And I think that that tweak has nothing to do with differences of opinion, but instead just kind of the perspective that you come from. So, but... If you look at it, what you see is there's actually alignment among all of us in terms of what we're recommending and what we're saying that optimizes gut health. When you see that, when you see people who are saying, look, we're reading the science and this is what we're finding, and then you're finding the exact same messaging popping up in different places, that to me is one of the things that people really should be looking out for. Because I think it, it is so hard to like separate 
you know, something that's real from something that's just a facade. But if it's the lone wolf out there and there's no one else saying the same thing, that actually is a little bit disturbing because where are they getting their information from if they're the lone wolf? Yeah. And both of those, if people are interested in learning more about Dr. Desmond or Tim Spector, they're on the All Sorts podcast. So people can go through our back catalog and learn more about these incredible individuals. So I want to, I have a couple more reader questions for you, if you don't mind. Cool, let's do it. The first is, and something that I'm very excited to ask you, because as a dietitian, I tend to, you know, way out of this conversation mostly. A reader asked whether or not being on acid blockers for years can hurt your gut. Yeah. So the issue with these acid blockers, and specifically I'm talking about proton pump inhibitors, things like omeprazole, azomeprazole, pantoprazole. These are just a few examples. When they first came out, like we as a community of gastroenterologists sat there and said, gosh, these are fantastic. They work so well to address a need that we have in our clinic. We need you know, therapeutics, things that work for acid reflux. And from our perspective, there were no side effects. Like it's almost like they're completely safe. Why not? And then we started to see these studies emerge a little over 10 years ago that were showing us things that didn't necessarily make intuitive sense. Like using proton pump inhibitors is associated with Alzheimer's or with kidney disease or heart disease or small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Well, I am not quite ready to fully say that the evidence is clear that proton pump inhibitors cause all those things. But I do think that it's becoming increasingly clear that they do affect our microbiome, which could potentially explain those things. So there is a pathway that exists. Proton pump inhibitors, when chronically used, clearly do affect the microbiome, clearly do affect and increase our likelihood of getting an infection. And so in a perfect world, if I created utopia, I would have the ability to get my patients off of these medicines. Now, I'm going to just keep it very real from the perspective of a gastroenterologist who passionately wants to treat my patients with diet and lifestyle. The reality is that there are limitations to diet and lifestyle. The reality is that whether we're talking about acid reflux or heart disease or cancer, even if every single one of us followed the rules and did as we are told, there would still be people with acid reflux and heart disease and cancer. And we have to accept that. Like it's not a silver bullet. But there are many people who have not tried the diet and lifestyle approach for acid reflux. So we should, we should maximize the diet and lifestyle approach to acid reflux. And in doing that, the goal becomes very clear from my perspective. I want you on the lowest dose of medicine necessary to achieve the effect that we are trying to accomplish. So if you are on the medicine and you don't know why, then I don't know why you're on it. <laughs> and we need to reevaluate. And if you are on the medicine and you haven't tried tapering the medicine down in the last six months, you need to have a conversation with your doctor because I think that it's worth trying this. And if you're taking this medicine chronically and it is your goal to come off the medicine and you haven't implemented a strategic approach to diet and lifestyle, then that's where I would start. And Desiree, I actually taught a course 
all about, it was called going head to head with heartburn. And it was all about giving people these tools because the problem is that that conversation, like I did a two and a half hour training. And so that conversation I can't literally have in the clinic, but we can share this information here. And that's the beautiful thing. Amazing. I have one more reader question before we go into the rapid fire. And that was, we talked a lot about stress and you gave the specific example of someone who was dealing with a really traumatizing work life and that things got better when she was able to resolve that. And the reader question actually was, how do we help stress-related? And we know that they the gut issues are stress-related if they can't change their job. Yeah, this actually happens, I think, to a lot of people. And I don't think it's necessarily just the job. It could be stress at home. You know, it could be something that's completely out of your control. Maybe there's a person in your family who's dependent on you and that you have the responsibility of protecting this other human life. So there's a number of different ways that we could paint this picture. And I think it's very relatable, hopefully, to the people who are listening at home. It's not easy, but I think that where we start is having an approach. You have to first turn your attention to this and acknowledge that it's there. Because I think that to so many of us, intentional or not, we sweep it under the rug. We're busy. We ain't got time for that, right? And whatever, I'm tough. And it's okay to acknowledge that there are things that are affecting you from an emotional perspective that are worthy of your time and attention and potentially support from someone outside of yourself. So you wrote about in your book, some of the approaches that you recommend, you know, from like, for example, meditation perspective or exercise perspective, yoga has actually been shown to improve irritable bowel syndrome in clinical research studies. Cognitive behavioral therapy is very powerful. Obviously that has to be done with a trained health professional. These are some of the approaches that you can take, but I, I, I sincerely believe that like step one is acknowledgement that this is worthy of your time worthy of your attention. And then from there, you work on creating a strategy to help to facilitate, you know, as much improvement as you possibly can. Yeah. Love that. Thank you. All right. So it is time for the rapid fire questions. And there's a couple reader, easy reader cues popped in here oh too. <laughs> Fun. All softballs, I promise. So the first is that you are a busy dad. You are a husband. You also have, and I really need to stress this with folks who see how much you do in terms of your online courses, your books, your Instagram presence. You have a gastroenterology. You are a practicing gastroenterologist. All of that takes an unbelievable amount of time. So if you had 20 minutes to yourself and you're not allowed to do anything, quote unquote, productive with it, it has to be for you. What do you do? I have a voracious appetite for fantasy football. Love it. <laughs> and so the problem for me in that arena is that I spend 20 minutes on it. And then all of a sudden I look up at the clock and I'm like, oh man, how has it been an hour and a half? <laughs> so it's like the classic sort of addiction perspective. Love it. Awesome. This one came from a reader. What's a great alternative to bone broth? This is, thank you for the softball whoever this reader is. It wasn't me. I promise you, I did not submit this <laughs> anonymously. Bone broth. I, I get it. Like it doesn't, it, people feel good when they drink a warm, like sort of electrolyte rich liquid. It makes, it soothes the gut. There is no question, but 
do the bones have anything to do with it? There actually is no evidence of that. In fact, there is no study that says that bone broth is good for your gut microbiome. There, there is no study. There hasn't even been one study. So I, I'm not sure where this idea comes from, you know, other than people feel good when they drink a warm electrolyte rich broth. So with Fiber Field, my first book, I like saw that there was this issue, like why do we care about the bone? And decided that I wanted to create a way that I, I felt was actually more evidence-based because there is evidence for fiber. There is evidence for polyphenols, which are like sort of the compounds that you find in plants that give them color. And those are prebiotic too, meaning they feed the microbiome. Not exactly the same as the fiber, but they're all working to shape a healthy gut. And you can get those things with a like delicious vegetable broth. So I created biome broth because biome broth gives you everything that you enjoy about bone broth, but coming from the perspective of being more evidence-based and actually providing those nutrients, a wide variety of those different types of fiber that actually can help you to improve your gut health. Amazing. Love it. Love biome broth. Okay. We've learned the fantasy football fact about yourself, which I love, but do you have a hidden talent. I am the first person that you should invite to your wedding. Ooh. Even if you don't know me, just send the invite. I might be there Amazing. because basically what happens is everyone's like sitting there eating their cake and the band strikes up and I'm out there Love and I'm it. cutting a rug and having a great time. And people see this and they want to be a part of it. And next thing you know, we got, it's like wedding crashers. You know, we're all like jumping up and, you know, you make me want to shout and we're all jumping up and down and that's what happens. Okay. Honestly, that is one of the most important hidden talents I have probably ever heard because anyone who has been to a wedding where the dance floor is crickets knows you need that seed. You literally need that dancing sprout to grow the dance floor. I love that. Oh, I'm, more, I'm more than happy to be that person. There ain't no shame in my game. And this is just, I love dancing. I think dancing is therapeutic for the soul. And we actually have family dance parties after dinner sometimes, me and my kids. So cool. Love it. Okay. Uh, another reader one, how much fiber is too much? But that's a personal, that's a personal thing. It's not a number. So it comes back to, we have to individualize what we do. There is such a thing as too much fiber. Like I often sometimes feel like people, because I, I wrote a book called Fiber Fields, they think that I'm saying that you need to put your foot on the gas of fiber and never take it off. That's not true. Low and slow is the tempo. You introduce fiber, you ramp it up. If you consume too much, it's going to cause digestive distress. So you get the gas and the bloating, cramping, changing the bowel habits. And when that's the case, you just back it off a little bit and continue on this process. Low and slow is the tempo. Amazing. All right, now the final question, because we have not talked as much about the actual recipes in the incredible new cookbook, which are gorgeous. Everyone needs them. Everyone should, if they have not already pre-ordered, they should do it right away. But what is the first recipe you think everyone should make from the new cookbook? What's your fave? I know it's hard to choose faves, but. That is, that is very hard. So, well, let me, let me start with this. There were two recipes. So Fiber Fueled, my first book, had 80 recipes. There were two recipes that people freaked out. And they just kept sharing it and tagging me. They still, like to this day, I'm sure if I open up my phone, I could show you. 
One is the biome broth, and the other were the Snickers bites. And so this time around, we have six versions of biome broth, six, seven, either six or seven versions of biome broth. So there's low histamine, there's low FODMAP, there's traditional biome broth, but then there's also sort of these like special forms, like there's like a Mediterranean biome broth, like Tuscan. And anyway, so biome broth is in there heavily. And then there's four new versions of the Snickers bites. So that like passion, I'm with you and let's bottle that up and keep rolling with it. I think I like the sweet potato bar. It's fun. It's, I'm a big believer in personalization, like make it your own. Don't, don't like be rigid about what is in this book, like make it your own, have fun with it. And, but like delicious sweet potato is so good for you. And it's easy on the eyes. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. And sweet potatoes are so delicious. Like I hate to be a dietitian, plant-based cliche, but <laughs> sweet potatoes are so incredibly delicious. I'm like highly intrigued by the purple sweet potatoes too. Like they're yeah. just like, you cut it open. You're like, oh my gosh, it's purple. <laughs> it's it's like yeah. mind blowing. They're absolutely beautiful. Dr. V, thank you so, so very much for taking the time to talk with me here on the All Sorts podcast. Uh, you are a total gift to all of us. And I can't wait for everyone to see your incredible new book. I mean, I, I feel the same way. Desiree. So I'm, I'm honored to come on and have this conversation with you. I love your new book, Good for the Gut. I think that everyone needs to grab a copy of this book. It's beautiful. It's delicious. It's gut health based. There's a methodology to it. So, and I think, you know, for the complete picture, honestly, grab both. I know. <laughs> so I, I just don't see any reason not to. May is gut health month in this house. Like that's, I love that. And you're going to have all of these incredible new recipes and like, it's going to be a very delicious summer. There we go. What a way to close season two of the All Sorts podcast. Dr. B is such a joy to listen to, not only for his evidence and how effective his advice is, but also for his humanity. We get so caught up in trying to be quote unquote perfect and eat perfectly. Not that perfect really even exists. And I feel like listening to Dr. B really helps reassure us that we are all on this path together and that it will look and feel different for us all. I feel so privileged to share this information with you, which I know will be useful to so many. If somehow, somehow this is your first time hearing about Dr. B, be sure to check out the resources he shares on his Instagram at theguthealthmd and theplantfedgut.com and go grab a copy of his books ASAP or put them on hold at the library stat. And now I promised an announcement. So I wanted to begin by thanking you for being here and for tuning into the All Sorts podcast each episode and for telling your friends and your family because it's helped us grow this podcast to the point where I am very excited to announce that after a brief pause, so I can launch Good For Your Gut, we will be bringing you the All Sorts podcast every two weeks, all year long. That's right, no more long waits in between seasons. We'll be nerding out on evidence-informed wellness all of the time. I had wanted to create a podcast for years before I actually made the leap and I'm so grateful for your support because it allows me to have these kinds of deep, meaningful conversations 
that you just can't have in a 30 second reel. So with the next season, we will also, also be sharing each episode over YouTube. So you can either watch or listen to the pod, whichever you prefer. Thank you so much for listening to the season finale of the All Sorts podcast, which is produced by myself and Tracy Ramsey and edited by Brian McCallman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and tsleil peoples. We'll see you this summer for season three, friends. So until then, be well. <laughs>